Morning, church. It's really good to be with you this morning um, and to be part of what God is doing in your midst. I think that's the kind of thing that I wanted to kind of pick up on to start off with. We're going to get into the scripture just in a moment. I was here on Sunday night last week. Uh, Matt is a good friend of mine and is somebody who's spoken into to my life uh, a fair bit. And uh, one of the, the things that he uh, uh, shared in the evening service was this picture of, of the church. So I don't think he shared it in the morning services, but it was, it was this, 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 this picture of a reservoir of, of water. And, and a sense that uh, God has equipped and gifted this church in a really special way. But it was an exhortation to allow that water to flow. So, so the good news of that is like, wow, the water is already there. It can flow. And sometimes when we, th- when we think of that, we immediately go to money or our physical resources. And it's certainly not less than that. But there's just a sense this morning that God is wanna, wanting to unleash you in a fresh way. And so it's such a, an honor and a privilege to be part of, of that. As John said, I work for you through the mission. That's YWAM, in case you were wondering, what on earth is that? Um, and, uh, and really, to sum up YWAM, uh, we, we, we believe um, uh, that we need to know God and make Him known. And in particular, we believe that there's a mandate for young people to be sent out into the world. And not just young people, but that's why I'm gifting, that's why I'm anointing, is to gather, to disciple, to send young people uh, from everywhere to everywhere. And so as you can see, I'm very young myself. Well, I was when I came out to South Africa. Uh, God called me here. Um, and uh, that was uh, 10 years ago. And uh, South Africa has been uh, very good to me. Can I just say that you've got a beautiful country? And uh, I met my wife here, uh, although she is a Scot. Uh, but God's busy reconciling everybody to everybody, you see. So... <laughs> So shame. She couldn't be here this morning, um, uh, partly because of comrades, partly because my, my boy's got con- conjunctivitis and his eyes are leaking like an alarming rate. And we've we've had a few uh, restless nights. We've got three little children: uh, uh, a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a six-month-old. So we we don't sleep a lot in our house. Uh, so John saw me last week. He said, "Oh, you look somewhat disheveled." I said, "How would you look?" Anyway. That's enough. There's enough preamble there, I think. But uh, but I wanted to share four keys with you. And friends, I want to share with you out of my out of my mistakes a little bit this morning, but also out of the scripture, like I said. And so, if if you're the kind of person who who likes a bit of an outline, we're gonna we're gonna look at four things. And the fourth thing, I, I want us to more enter into a prayerful space. So it's going to be less of a teaching point and more and more of of perhaps a, a time of waiting on God. But here's my outline this morning. It's not about you. That's point one. God has a mission. Point two. Jesus is the one. Point three. And then the fire you already have. Point four. So I want to read uh, uh, the scripture. So he's going to come up on the screen just now. So I've, I've bases around Luke 24 and Acts chapter 2. This is Jesus speaking. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. 
You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Acts 2, 2-4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So mission. I want to borrow a bit of a, a definition from John Stott this morning because I, I, I don't want to focus on what we're doing as YWAM or, 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 or to be to, to make too much of an application. You watched that brilliant video before. So I think we know what we ought to do as a church often. What I, what I want to talk about is kind of like the motivation or the heart for mission. And I want to frame that in the context of, like I said, some of the things that I've learned. But John Stott said this uh, thing about what mission is in, in that kind of broad sense. He defined it like this. He said, mission arises from the heart of God himself and is communicated from his heart to our heart. Mission is the global outreach of the global people of God. And so to look at point one, it's not about us. If I can be really honest with you, when I was being sent out from my uh, church in the UK, a good old Anglican church that I worked for for about six years before I joined you through the mission, a large part of my heart was just the excitement of going to somewhere that I thought was really cool, namely South Africa. And as I got uh, on the plane, I got sat down, uh, lo and behold, I sat next to a South African who then spent more or less from, from Dubai to Durban trying to convince me that I should go home. <laughs> Please, if you're ever sat next to a missionary on a plane, don't do that, Okay. And, you know, she was very negative about our country. And so as we, as we got into Durban at the old airport there, I started to think, maybe I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> and, and there's this sense, isn't there, that in our, in our culture today, we live in this kind of uh, me-centered culture. And if you look at Luke 24, we look at the context of Luke 24. It's like Jesus is, has, has been with his disciples for three years. And yet when he appears to them, he still needs to kind of sit them down and explain some stuff to them. Namely, how the scripture points to him, how all the Old Testament points toward Jesus, how he's the central figure. See, part of our challenge is, is that we've often preached and received the gospel, which doesn't have Jesus at the center, but which has me and you at the center. So part of the reason I could think 10 years ago that actually a lot of what I was going to do was around what God was calling me to do and, 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 and having my desires fulfilled and having this super exciting adventure for God was because part, part of the reason for that is because I'd received a gospel that kind of went like this. When I was at university, you know, I, I heard, you know what, alcohol, sex, drugs, that, that's not working for you. Let me tell you how Jesus can give you a purpose and a meaning for your life. And at that time in my life, I was deeply searching for purpose and meaning. And I'm not trying to say that Jesus doesn't give purpose and meaning for our lives. He absolutely does. But I'd accepted a gospel based on what I thought I could get out of it. 
And I want to suggest to you that that's not actually the gospel. (laughs) So it might be an entry point that God used in my life, but there is more to it than that. It's not completely untrue, but what we don't want to do is idle substitution. We say, these are bad, unethical, bad moral idols. And actually, as a person, what you need to do is you need to shift from these set of idols to this beautiful idol that we've created called Jesus. And if you accept him, he's going to make your life brilliant. Because what's the problem with that is I am still at the center of my own life. And what we saw today when the people got baptized is there's a sense of of being raised to new life with Jesus. But there's also a sense of like, actually, you've got to die. Right? You've got to go under the water to come out of the water, isn't it? And part of the problem is, is that many of us, we just haven't died. So we've got this kind of schizophrenic Christianity. You know, I get to meet lots of people um, doing the job that I do, traveling a bit and stuff like that. And the number of Christians that, I'm, that I meet that say something like this disturbs me greatly. Often people say, you know, well, basically, I'm not really sure if I'm following Jesus or not, really. Or, you know, I'm not really sure how passionate I am anymore about what I believe. Because, you know, God's not really lived up to his end of the bargain. I've not really got everything I felt that I, I deserved in my life. I don't think that's what Jesus is inviting us into when he invites us into his life. So, so consider this thought for a second as an illustration. The earth that we live on is like super heavy, okay? It's 5.9 trillion, trillion kgs, okay? And it has a circumference of about 40,000 miles, and it covers a massive 510 million square kilometers, right? And, and in football pitches, there's a real lot of football pitches, but to help you conceptualize it, it's 55 quadrillion 774 trillion, 278 billion, 215 million, 223,104 football pitches. Right? But yet, get this, yet, right, 1.3 million earths could fit inside our sun. And our sun, even though it contains only 19, it, it contains 99% of all matter in our solar system, it's still just a middle-sized star in, in the Milky Way galaxy. And in the Milky Way galaxy, it's one of about 200 billion stars. Yet the Milky Way galaxy is one of an estimated 100 billion galaxies in the universe. And what blows my mind more than the bigness of the universe is this, is that scientists have worked out that the matter that we can detect counts for only about 5% of what's out there. And, and we believe that our God is the God of the seen and the unseen. In Hebrews 1 verse 3, it says this of Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So the God who created the universe, all the people who holds it all together, the seen and the unseen, do, do you think He wants to be your PA? Friends, he doesn't. (laughs) See, in Luke 24, Jesus is locating himself at the center of the biblical story. And within that story, he's located at the center of humanity, the center of history, the center of creation itself. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
It's not a question of us saying we have no value as human beings. Rather, it's an understanding of his importance, the centrality of who Jesus is in relation to us. In a culture obsessed with self, this is radically counter-cultural. But how do you know if that truth has impacted your heart? What's the test? Well, I want to share this story that C.S. Lewis told, or this, this analogy. He said this in Mere Christianity. He said, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing. And so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house around in a way that hurts abominably. And it doesn't seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting in an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself. Friends, are we allowing Jesus to reshape us into something beautiful which is other than our own plan and our own understanding for our lives it's of vital importance to you for your soul but friends more than that how can we introduce people to a jesus that we do not know ourselves this morning can you pray this simple prayer with me god i surrender everything i am to you Jesus, help me to see your importance. Jesus, help me to live out what I know. So that's point one. It's not about us. It's about him. Point two, God has a mission. See, as we said, Jesus summarizes the scriptures and he locates himself at the center of it so that we can understand this story that God has unfolded in history. But what's more than that is he he goes on to say this, that forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And what's the nations? Well, it's another way of saying everyone, every culture, every place, everywhere. So this morning, I want to to argue that mission is, is not just something extra to the gospel, But it's something fundamental to what God is doing. It's an overused phrase, but it's essentially what the Bible is all about. It's God's story about how he's missioning this broken world. Think about that picture of Jesus breaking into our reality, of leaving the glory of heaven and entering into our world. It's about the initiative of God to come and bless at his expense. He does it in the garden. He does it to Abraham. He does it through Israel and most fully through the person of Jesus Christ. Chris Wright, who's an Old Testament scholar and a really smart guy, who also happens to be British. He said this, he said, The proper way for disciples of Jesus of Nazareth to read their scriptures is messianically and missiologically. In plain speech, it's about Jesus and Jesus has a mission. And it's a deep truth friends that God is inviting us into his mission I remember years ago I was receiving some training in YWAM and we were about to go up to the Sutu and we were asked this question by the teacher and she said 
she's a good friend of mine, she's called Grace, she said, what are you going to take with you? And so we first started by answering the question, oh, we're going to take, there's these Bibles, we're going to take this, we're going to take that. And then as the conversation moved on, we all were confident in, in the fact that we were, we were also taking Jesus with them, with us. And then she asked us this question, she said, do you think God is already working there? And we were quiet. Because we had a theology that, yes, we, Jesus does live inside of me. This, this is amazing. But, but actually, it all rested and, 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 and kind of fell on us. There was no concept that actually maybe God is already working in Lesotho. God is already working there. It's God's mission. He's inviting us into it. And it's nothing short of God redeeming everything, everywhere. The whole creation, it's a big vision. Chris Wright, again, he put it like this. He said, it's not so much that God has a mission for his church, but a church for his mission. That mission is that all creation will render glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning and so evermore shall be. That's, that's why we have to go, friends. It's because Jesus will be glorified when we do. Jesus will be glorified in the nations. And part of the reason why, why that's the case when we go cross-culturally, and you can go cross-culturally within your own context, is, is, is this. It's because it's really hard for you to take credit for it. Because when you enter another culture, if you don't come as a learner, you, you, you're not going to make the distance. You know, when I, when I came to South Africa, I came initially uh, to staff in Wyoming, like I said, and, and I was, I was here for three months and I went back home and, uh, uh, over the Christmas break, I made arrangements that when I came back to South Africa, I would have a, a, a nice place to live and stuff like that. And so on landing in South Africa, I did a week's teaching up in the Berg and then I was coming back down to Durban and just before I set off, I thought I'd check with the guy who I was renting a room from. And he said, you know what, we're really sorry, we've been trying to get hold of you, but uh, uh, I've got back together with my wife, and so you can't, you can't come and stay. And so I was like, oh, okay. And at the, at the time in Waiwan, we'd, we'd had a real difficulty that we'd had to um, sell our kind of communal property where some of the guys were staying, so I couldn't go there either. I, I knew about 20 people. So I, I just went through my phone book, and uh, person after person said, you know, we'd really love to help you. But, but we can't, that we've got no room. Friends, in the end, one of the townships where we were working at the time, uh, a Zulu couple who, who I thought in my understanding that I'd come to minister to, they took me into their house and they welcomed me into their family and I lived with them for a year. It was the most humbling, beautiful experience and uh, the, 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 the kind of wife in the, in, in the, in the relationship, she was a, uh, a Christian. The husband, he was not. But they made me part of their family. There's, there's no way that I can take credit for that. You know, I felt helpless. I felt completely at the mercy of, of, of other people. But Jesus gets the glory when, when we're in a position of weakness. Because God is already working because it's his mission this is this is powerful and it's liberating because i don't have to put the gospel on to people 
I, can, I get to draw it out. My, my question as I'm entering a conversation with somebody is, is it's not focused on me, but it's rather like I get to say, okay, God, what are you already doing? That's my assumption. And, and that is a game-changing methodology when it comes to sharing your faith, when it comes to evangelism. So point one, it's not about you. Point two, God has a mission. Point three, Jesus is the one. To know Jesus in his death and resurrection, this is the motivation and reason for mission. And anything that originates outside of that, I would say, cannot bear the weight of what the calling is. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, friends, again, when I, when I first came out, um, I, I was taken by a friend to the railway tracks in town. I don't know if you've been down there, but there's a, there's a group of people who live on the railway tracks in our city. There's, a, there's, there's between about three and 500 of them at any one time, and they're called the Wonga Nation. That's because they're addicted to Wonga. And I am telling you, I was, I, was, I was shaken to the core. It's like I couldn't sleep after going there. And I, and, I, and I felt such compassion to see young people whose lives are disintegrating before your eyes. It's like, it's like hell on earth. And, and, and I'm a pretty compassionate guy. And so I thought to myself, I've got to, I've got to go, I've got to do something. And, and, it, and it was good. I'm sure God looked, looked at that heart and said, like, you know, that's good. But after six months... I was so depleted that I stopped going. Because compassion will only get you so far, friends. Okay? It's a, it's a human resource that we have. Such a foundation is, is not strong enough. But Jesus states this, thus it's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. What's he saying? He's saying he suffered. He died in our place. He paid for something so that we could be forgiven. To look at this from a slightly different perspective, let's turn to Revelations chapter 5. I'm going to read uh, from verse 7 just for the sake of time. But there's a, there's a question. Who is worthy to open the scroll, right? That's the context. And it says this. Verse 7, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seal because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Friends, we engage in the mission of God because Jesus is worthy of his worship. Listen. It is a deep, deep injustice that Jesus paid such a high price for me, for you, for everybody. And there are sons and daughters and they're giving their worship to lesser idols. That is a deep injustice. Consider in your own life, in small ways, when you've experienced injustice. When you paid for something that you didn't receive. Think about how indignant you were about that. I remember being a kid in science club and having the, a brilliant idea and, and somebody else got the credit for it. 
I don't know if you've ever experienced that at work where you had a brilliant idea and your boss got the credit for it. But how did it make you feel, right? But, but think about this. Jesus is the most worthy person ever. This is, is the heart and motivation for why we engage in mission. See, when we see his worthiness and we understand that we are recipients of such immense grace, that the only true response is this. Jesus, I understand that you're my everything and all that I am and all that I have belongs to you. Not because I ought to give it or because I feel guilty, but because I get to for the beauty of who you are and what you have done. It's so captivated my heart that the only thing I can do is live a life of worship in response to you, Jesus, and who you are. It's a beautiful thing when we understand that, when we grasp that. Compassion is good, but it will run out. We, we need to reorientate our hearts to, to see Jesus for who he is once again. Finally, uh, the fire you already have. So if, in case you missed it, it's, it's, it's Pentecost Sunday. It's, it's, this is the time we think about when the Holy Spirit came to the early church. And here in Acts, we, we see this fulfillment of the promise that Jesus makes in Luke 24, the promise of the Father. And we see the Spirit comes with this sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it's, an, it's like an enabling power. And, and we see these, this, this, these tongues of fire gathering on the early church. And, and, and there, was a, there was a similar gathering of God's people when the law was given, right? So Pentecost is, is like 50 days uh, uh, after the Passover. And it's a celebration of, of the first wheat harvest, but it's also a celebration of when the law was given. But, but unlike that, God is going to write his law in our hearts, right? It comes with the pronouncement of these other tongues and other languages, the, the curse of Babel, the, the, the confusion, and, and being unable to work with other cultures is, is broken by the power of the Spirit. But the thing that interests me and the thing that I felt God was, was really drawing my attention to in my preparation was, was this thought, is that they, they had to wait for the Spirit to come. And I've talked about you know, the timing of that being very significant. But, but there's all, it's also interesting to me that the command was for them to wait. And, and there's a sense in that we don't need to wait for the Holy Spirit now because that's an, a historical event that happened. The Holy Spirit has came. But I want to make a distinction this morning between waiting for the Holy Spirit, right? So I've already said that God is at work in the world. His Holy Spirit is already at work, right? God has a mission. But there's a difference between waiting for the Holy Spirit, in my view, and waiting on the Holy Spirit. See, I, I love South Africa, and, and I've, I've been here for 10 years. But sometimes, if, if I can just be really honest with you this morning, and I'm speaking to, 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 to the whiteies predominantly, okay? That kind of European, task-orientated, oaks-let's-make-a-plan culture is a strength in many, many ways. Like sometimes when I look at the kind of flip-flapping in the UK, I just think, just need a few South Africans here to sort it out. Jeez, Brexit, man, come on. Right? But sometimes our cultural prejudice, right, can naturally lead us into spaces that are contrary to how God would have us operate. So it doesn't mean that we don't have agency 
or we can't get things done, or that planning is bad. It doesn't mean any of that stuff. But sometimes we skip the waiting part. We just say, okay, cheers God, I've got this. But waiting on God is, is not an irritation. It's not like queuing in traffic just to wait to get to your destination. Waiting on God is both beautiful and formational. Okay? And if, if we miss that, then we're going to miss an opportunity to be formed. And we're going we're gonna to miss seeing a beauty that exists in God. So when I was a kid, um, my dad always said to me, every time he washed his car, did I want to help him? And, and if you think about that, you know, the idea that a six-year-old might help you accomplish a task, like washing a car, is, is pretty counterintuitive, right? Because it's like, what was I obsessed with? I was obsessed with, with washing the hubcaps over and over again, right? And I would start at the bottom of the car and work my way up. And everyone who's ever washed a car knows you start at the top and work your way down. And then I'd be like washing the garage, I'd be washing my brothers. It was, it was just not good. But then why did my dad ask me to wash the car with him? Well, you know why. It's because he wanted me to be with him. He wanted me to, to, to be part of what he was doing, to learn from him. Charles Spurgeon uh, said this. He said, if the Lord Jehovah makes us wait, let us do it with our whole hearts. For blessed are all they that wait for him. He is worth waiting for. The waiting itself is beneficial to us. It tries faith, exercises patience, trains submission, and endears the blessing when it comes. The Lord's people have always been awaiting people. We're shaped by waiting. It engenders faith, humility. And we get to hear from God when we wait. And it blesses God's heart. You know, uh, don't tell my wife this, but I, I actually dated other people before we got married. And it, when I was at university, uh, I don't know if you've ever had lucky trainers, but I had lucky trainers. And so I was going on this date. It was a first date, but my trainers were locked in a friend's room. And I could see the clock was getting very close to the time that I needed to be at this particular her bar. And um, But I couldn't leave without my lucky trainers, you see. And my friend, I called him, he said, no, uh, I'm on my way back. Just hang on five minutes. Anyway, five minutes turned into 15 minutes, which turned into 20 minutes. But then he finally got back. I put on my lucky trainers. I ran to, the, to this bar on campus. And uh, there was this uh, girl from my philosophy class. And she'd waited for me. And I knew in that moment that she was super keen. So when we wait on God, it, it communicates value to him. It communicates that actually, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in you, Jesus. Like m many times it's like, that. yes, the Holy Spirit is an enabling power. But he is also a person. And, and, and it's better to have a love relationship with him as a person than just to say, hey, I just need some stuff from you. Hey, I've got this thing to do. I've got this important meaning. Can you just pitch up, please? That's, that's part of the beauty of the waiting. So that's my four, four things. I hope there's something in there which has helped you, which has helped you to reframe how you view God's calling on your life. This is what I want to do. Time is against us. It's been a busy Sunday. So I'm not going to invite the worship team up. Although God does love the minor keys.
Okay? But he can also just come without. So I want you to just be quiet for a moment. And let's just have a posture of waiting as a body this morning. Jesus, we just want to thank you for your word to us this morning. God, we thank you that we are grateful recipients of your gospel. Jesus, please fill us once again afresh with your Holy Spirit. Jesus, so that that Holy Spirit, that living water, God, that reservoir of water might flow out of us. God, I I thank you that we don't need to be afraid that we're going to be depleted because your Holy Spirit is being poured out. God, would you teach us the discipline of waiting so that we might be filled continually. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray. After I've prayed, you can do a number of things. You could come to the front and kneel here and pray on your own. You could uh, ask them to pray with you or somebody else. You could go through to the chapel and you could pray with people there. Or you could go outside and connect with somebody and enjoy something to drink and chat to one of our missionaries. But whatever you do, go in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and his great mission. And so let me pray this. May the Spirit of Christ empower you to love and serve your neighbors. As you invite them into your hearts and your homes, your lives and your schedules, may they come to understand through being loved by you that they are loved by God and can love him in return. You are more ready to do this than you realize. Go now. In the grace, mercy, and peace of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.